Hello and welcome back to the Bridging Chicago podcast. We're so thankful that you're joining us here for another episode. We want to make sure that we get to connect with you, so be sure to follow us on our socials where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on LinkedIn as well by searching Bridging Chicago. And you can, of course, go to our website, www.bridgingchicago.com, where you can listen to all of our past episodes and our past seasons now in season five. And I am very excited today to be joined by Cynthia Tucker, who is the Senior Vice President of Prevention and Community Partnerships with the AIDS Foundation Chicago, who we have had on here before. We haven't had Cynthia, but we've had uh, a couple other guests from the AIDS Foundation Chicago talking about programs there. So we're always really excited to get to hear about new things that are happening there and different programs um, that we haven't heard about before. So Cynthia, thank you very much for joining us today. Good morning and thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited that you're here with us. Um, I always like to start by asking people to share their Chicago stories. So can you tell us, are you from the Chicago area or did you come here from somewhere else? So I was born and raised in Chicago, um, grew up on the far south side of Chicago where my family still resides. Um, and I have been here, gone to school here, graduated from Chicago State, went on and got my doctorate from Walden University while I was working at AFC. Um, I've been at AFC for 16 and a half years, which is the AIDS Foundation Chicago. Wow, that is amazing. Um, whenever people are from Chicago, we always talk about the neighborhoods because obviously Chicago is really big on neighborhoods and can be a good thing, can be a challenging thing. And I think especially for people from the South and West sides, you know, they uh, often feel sort of not as in touch with some of the North side neighborhoods or even the downtown area at times. Um, can you share with us sort of what your neighborhood was like growing up and then how that sort of interacted with the rest of the city? But it's probably going to age me out a little bit, but I'll <laughs> share. Because <laughs> I actually had a wonderful childhood. Grew up with, in a two-parent home. Uh, we had access to many things. But I think the most important thing, we had parents that wanted more for us. And yeah. so they insisted that we go to school and insisted that they took us places. So we were exposed. So I was exposed to the north side and to the downtown um, okay. Chicago as a young person. But grew up with a community of, you know, individuals who were working class um, and we all took care of each other. And, you know, I came from the period where everyone was everyone's child. And so mm. if you did something wrong, your neighbor actually pointed it out and told your mom <laughs> when, uh, when she came home from work. So uh, just very exciting. And things have changed. Uh, so that same yeah. neighborhood, although it's still very vibrant, um, of course, uh, poverty, um, individuals who have moved in, violence has increased. And so you see those changes and um, we know that we need to do more in working with various populations who are suffering from various social determinants of health. Let me ask you about this because it's something that I've wondered for a while um, because I've heard that what happened in Chicago a lot was as people were getting displaced, they were being pushed out to the South and West and then even further suburbs and even in other areas of Illinois, as um, public housing sort of changed, 
we know that um, the Cabrini Green neighborhood that had a lot of public housing in it was torn down and a lot of people were displaced and pushed out. Um, did you see the effects of that? Is that something that, that you saw as well? Or, or, um, or how do you feel like public housing played a role in, um, in what you're seeing in these neighborhoods? You know, public housing was created originally as a way to kind of create communities. And I think they thought it was going to work, but they didn't build, they built them up instead of mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. um, and having people on top of each other in an area that is not supported by infrastructure um, and you don't have the amenities in a community and it's difficult for individuals to get it was a setup for failure. Yeah. And so therefore we had a lot of redlining. We had a lot of things that happened on the south, south and west side that prevented, you know, black individuals from prospering and from moving forward um, and creating wealth for their families. Uh, you know, my parents bought their home brand new. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, my dad had told me, I think $21,000 uh, years ago. But we had this community of people and that has died out. We're not able to build that. Uh, we have been torn and not able by design and by racism to get things that other populations have the opportunity to have and access. Yeah. yeah. I think that we see systems that sort of kind of lend itself to racism and, um, Certainly, our prison system is one of those. Um, I know that the number for Black women, especially, that are jailed, as opposed to white women or Latino women, um, and I'm sure other races as well, is uh, is uh, 3.8 times uh, the rate of white women and 2.4 times the rate of Latino women, which is, I mean, when you look at it on its face, you say, well, okay, why is that? And I think that people try and identify reasons of why that might be. But I think um, kind of what you're sharing about public housing, about neighborhoods, about communities, about resources, um, kind of leans towards that um, if, if people aren't resourced properly and if uh, systems aren't designed to be good for all people, then that's going to happen. And I think seeing those numbers in context of sort of how resources are allocated really actually isn't unfortunately surprising. Absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned that incarceration, um, violence, uh, poverty, all of these things, stigma are really adding to um, women not having the opportunities that they need to expand. Um, and to, you know, thrive. And so we've created at AFC a program that is funded by HRSA, the Health Resources Services Administration. It is a special project of national significance called Women's Evolving. And the idea of that program is to work with Black, cis, and trans women who are transitioning from jail and prison and who are uh, impacted by all of these things that we've talked about. And we've designed some bundled interventions 
that will allow them to get back into the community, have access, have support. We have navigation services so we can get them to the care services that they need. Women aren't lost to care. They don't know exactly how to find it. Um, we want to make sure that they have case management services so that they have someone who can assist them and help them navigate. We have mobile health. Everyone needs access to a cell phone that has internet capability so that we found that out in COVID that we really need to make sure because everyone was using their phone to order food yeah. and to do right. uh, medical. So if you don't have these um, essential things, then it's not possible for you to move forward. So we've created all of these within this one program. Uh, we also have employment services so we can help them access opportunities that are available. And then we have connections for housing. Housing is one of the major needs. When people are housed properly, then they access care and services. Um, and then we also want to make sure that they have support for social services. We don't always think of social services as something that is integral, but it is it's essential to us functioning. When you don't have a support network around you, it's hard to function at work, at school, or whatever it is that you do in your community. Um, so we want to make sure that we partner with women. We're not providing the service, but we're partnering with them to make sure that they have access to all of the services. They are a part of our programs. And one of the things that we've done is we've hired women with lived experience so that you have someone who looks like you, who's been through some of the same challenges that you have, who lives in the same neighborhood that you do to assist you because they've gotten yeah. through. And that's really one of the um, big marks of the program to be able to have that representation. I see a lot with uh, successful nonprofits, the importance of mentorship and it's, it's like, yes, you can provide resources or you can provide access to resources, but mentorship seems to be something that really drives it home and that really increases the likelihood of success of those programs and resources. And I think that it's great that you are partnering with them um, because I think it's important for people to, to know that they can do this, that they can do it, all, they, they can make it happen for themselves as long as they have that access. And so Absolutely. I'm really excited that you're doing that. Mentorship, coaching, and navigation services. I think the navigators um, are essential to every program, every nonprofit out there is doing community health workers. We need to rise them up because they are the ones that really make the connections and make sure that individuals know and have a kind of helping hand. It's like they're learning how to walk again. And just as a baby, you just lend a hand and that baby can walk. And so that is what the program is intending to do is to use these individuals to reach out, partner with individuals, get them into care, keep them retained in care and all other services. And then for that, we also want to make sure that they have services that are going to prolong their life, getting a job, uh, getting a house, those things that are essential to them thriving and not returning back to incarceration. I want to ask you 
about domestic abuse because um, for women, obviously, it's an issue that I think can be a lasting one. I don't, I don't really know if you can completely get over or get past it. Um, and I, and I would think that, I guess I would assume that it would have some, it could play a role in women trying to empower themselves to provide their, their needs and the needs of their families. Um, do you interact a lot with women that have been victims of domestic abuse? And um, if so, like, how do you help them uh, just, you know, how do you empower them to, to go forward with their lives and to be able to still do the things that they dreamt of doing when they were little girls? Absolutely. And it's, it's, so one, making sure that, you know, we work with a lot of women who suffer from intimate uh, partner violence and domestic violence. And we want to make sure that we're working with them, not only to give them the resources, so we partner with various organizations that provide those specific services, but also that we're providing, that's where that mentorship, that coaching, that having a person who's been through that really helps you, uh, mm -hmm. almost like a buddy program, so that you have someone to talk to. It is so mm -hmm. important that we let them know you can get past this, you can move forward, you can move on, you can have a really fantastic life and really thrive. And so um, that is important. It's the coaching, it's the social support. It's building up a new network that is going to support that woman. And that is what, um, we had a listening session and one of the things that I do a lot is make sure that we're listening to women who are living with HIV and we're talking to them and we're not building programs without them. Yeah. And so it's really important that they tell us what the needs are and then we try to provide those and meet them where they are. Yeah, that's, that's really, I think it's encouraging that you're doing that. And I hope that people um, see it that way because I think a lot of times it can be discouraging to see the numbers and to look at just, you know, facts on a sheet and say, well, how do we solve this problem? And I think it's encouraging to hear what you're saying about partnering with women and about, you know, just meeting them where they're at and doing the best for them because, you know, uh, without proper legislation, I think it's, it really is an uphill battle. And um, I know it's one that a lot of people are fighting, but uh, I think that your program is really unique. And I think it's really, I'm really encouraged that, that you and your team are doing that. Um, if you could share with us some challenges, because there, there's been an unfortunate trend in um, violence against transgender women. And so if you could um, share with us some of the unique challenges that transgender women and especially black transgender women face um, in just trying to live life. I mean, I'm not even talking about like being going out there and being the CEO of a big company. I'm We're talking about even just trying to live life as a you know, female identifying person. Absolutely. Black transgender women are just really at this point in time. Unfortunately, they are disc highly discriminated against. Yeah. Um, they have a lack of support, lack of infrastructure. Um, they are highly stigmatized, um, you know, but they're also very resilient. And we've worked with them over the years and, it's time for us to have resources for them, by them. We work with agencies directly that do this work. 
and like Life is Work, like Brave Space Alliance here in Chicago. Um, and these are Black trans-led organizations that are able to provide services. So we partner with them so that they can provide those services directly, as well as we make sure that we hire Black trans women. It's important that they see. I keep saying representation. It's important. If you walk into a door and you're feeling highly stigmatized as a Black trans woman trying to get services and no one there looks like you and no one understands you, it's very difficult and very hard for you to walk in that door. But if you're walking into an agency that has um, someone that looks like you and they're culturally responsive to you, then it makes it easier for you to walk in, uh, get those services and know that you're not going to be laughed at or mistreated or misunderstood. Um, and so that is really important with working with Black trans women. And I'm so glad that this project, Women's Evolving, we have been allowed to really work with that population and make sure that they feel a part of, because Black trans women are women. Um, and yep. they need access to services, they need support and that network. Uh, I identify as a member of the LGBTQIA plus community. And it's interesting because I think even within that community, you know, it's, some people call it the alphabet mafia or, you know, the rainbow or whatever it is um, that people call it. But uh, I think people don't always realize that even within that community, I mean, that's a pretty large and pretty different group of people. And unfortunately, I actually haven't been able to interact with many trans people. And so I don't think I even understand it as much as I would like to. Um, this, you know, feeling different uh, as far as like your assigned gender um, or, your, or your, your birth gender, however you want to say it, um, and knowing that you, that's not who you are. And then you know, as, as a gay person, you, have, you, you know, a lot of people come out at some point and they, they tell people that they identify as gay and that they are, you know, wanting to date same sex people. And I think as, as a transgender person, you also come out at some point, um, hopefully people feel like they can come out and be themselves. But I have to imagine that that's a very difficult and very different sort of process. And I think that when I think about, for me, um, going to counseling, you know, worrying about my mental health was paramount to being able to live my truest self. For trans people, I think that is obviously true as well. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, I, I can't even think about what that would be like. And the difficulties I think that would come with that. Yeah, you know, they're, they're truly misunderstood and um, there's so much stigma with that population in particular. Um, and put on top of that black poverty mm -hmm. and all of the other things that we have in this society. And it is just insurmountable how they have to deal with all of this. And so it's important that we partner with them. We work with them. We're allies for that group. We advocate for them. It's time for things to change and for them to be accepted. Um, it mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, um, all of the murders, it's unbelievable that this is happening and it is 2022. Um, 
And I don't know how many times we've had someone to call and say, can you assist with burying this woman who was found in a dumpster or a garbage can? It's got to stop. It's time for us to partner with them, respect them as people, and bring them into our programs and services, hire them, work with them. They are people. Um, and it's just humanity and what we need to do. Um, we live in a society where, uh, you know, there's so much um, racism and uh, discrimination happening that we need to really make those changes and support that priority population. Yeah, we we are definitely a polarizing society. And I think that recent years has really, you know, made that even more evident than it was before, unfortunately. Um, I'm going to ask this question, it may be a little awkward, but it's something that I was thinking about while you were sharing this, and I think you shared a little bit about it, but I think that as someone in a minority group, you were like, like you were saying, you know, transgender, add-on, Black, add-on, you know, possibly not as educated as some, you know, whatever, uh, whatever challenges they've been facing, that person has been facing. And I think one of the things that I hear from people, it's it's really interesting because a lot of my community is white because my hometown was very white. And a lot of them are like, okay, well, I'm, I'm white and I am cisgender. They don't use the term cisgender, but like that's what they're yeah. saying is they're white and they're cisgender. And now they feel like the enemy. And that's not at all the case. And that's not at all the message. But... I was wondering if you can speak to what what like a what the ask really is or, or what the need really is from white cisgender people because I'd like to kind of help clear that up because I think a lot of times they feel like we're bullying or we're we're trying to like turn the tables and like reverse racism I've heard. And and I, I would just like to kind of See if you can hit on that and, and your thoughts on that. Yeah, and I have a lot of things swirling in my head, but I'll try to yeah. put something together. I think the biggest thing is to be an ally, to try to understand, support. Yeah. And while you can't walk in their shoes, you can understand. Mm-hmm. You can comprehend that. How would you feel if you had to go through that and the shoe was on the other foot? So try to understand how Black people, one, feel, and a black trans woman feels highly stigmatized, discriminated against, talked about, ridiculed. Um, why? That's a person and an yeah. individual. Yeah. And it's just like um, this thing about critical race theory. It kind of brings us to that. We have to talk about it. We have to understand it. Because it keeps happening and it's still happening. And we're not going to make a change. And yes, it's uncomfortable, unfortunately. But we felt, as a Black person, I've always felt uncomfortable. (laughs) So when is it our turn? When is it okay for us to talk about these things? And we're not saying that it's going to... Uh, we're saying we need to move forward. And the only way we can move forward is to discuss it is to share it. It's our history. It is what has happened 
to us and is still happening to us. And so therefore, we have to step up and say, we understand, we support, we study, so we can make that change and make movement into what has been happening, especially around Black trans women. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, if people educate themselves about, you know, what's going on, listen to people who are in marginalized communities, I think that's a huge step. And we're not asking, you know, for the tables to turn and for people of color to get every free resource that's out there, but we're just asking for access to resources that I think have been we're asking for available. opportunities. Yeah. We need the same opportunities. If we, And we have proven that if we have the same opportunities, we rise to the occasion. Yeah. And yeah. trans women have already shown that. So we know that they can, but we need to stop blocking it. It needs to not be about... It needs to be about making sure that we have the same equity. Yeah. And looking through that lens. Yeah. Thank you. That's, uh, thank you for sharing that because I, it's a tough question and I know it can be, um, hard for people to, to hear and to even share. So, so thank you for, for sharing that. Um, uh, let's talk about something a little lighter because, you know, it's been a heavy conversation, but I want to talk about your team there because I know that you work with great people. You've had the opportunity to talk to a couple of them um, here. And obviously, if you haven't heard those episodes, you can go back and listen to them. I know we spoke with Peter, with, sorry, Peter Tepfer. Yes. Um, and, Vice President of Housing and Executive yes. Director of the um, Community for Supportive Housing. And I think that, um, you know, these pieces all kind of go together. And I think uh, when you listen to the to the three episodes together, you kind of understand how one builds off of the other. And I think you get a better picture of what the AIDS Foundation really, um, like the heart of the of its mission. And I think the heartbeat of that is the people and, and the people that we've um, been able to to meet, to interview, to hear from are really, you're all amazing. And I think that the, your team must be amazing. So share with me about the rest of the team there. Absolutely. So I kind of start from the top. You know, AFC, I've been there 16 and a half years, as I said earlier. And it is a place that we're always thinking and driving and trying to partner. So I am the senior vice president of community partnerships and special projects, which that means is I really like to work with community, other organizations. We realize that we can't do the work alone at AFC. We have a fantastic group of individuals, over 150 people who work in housing, our care services, um, and our community partnership team to actually build out programs and services. And then we have all of the infrastructure staff that support us. But really our main goal is to partner with organizations to make sure we are providing services for people who are homeless or living with HIV, who are justice involved uh, from priority populations to make sure that they have access to care and they meet those opportunities that we've been talking about. Yeah. And the way that you 
do that, I think, is really encouraging because, um, as you shared, with doing the partnerships, I think, is really um, making the most impact because, you know, you're listening, I think, is, is a big one. And I uh, just want to make sure we were clear. So John Peller, we got to hear from. Um, Resident and, CEO. Yes, and Peter Tupfer. And um, those two episodes were in season four. And so um, we'll link those so that people can go back and listen to those. But um, I think when you hear all those and you you hear about the mission and you hear about, uh, about what y'all are doing and how you just keep coming up with new new stuff also. And I think that's really good, too, is um, just not being happy with what you've done, but, um, but looking at new, new stuff as well, I think is really cool. Yeah, new and innovative projects are really something that we try to do. We've been doing work around getting to zero, definitely the Women's Evolving program. I also have a Women's Connection program. We work directly with Black-led organizations to make sure that they have what they need um, and try to support them as much as we can. So there's a lot of various programs that really work with Pacific populations, with our partner organizations to get this work done. Um, I am so proud of a lot of the work. And yes, there's much, much, much more to do. I wish I could duplicate myself about three or four times um, because there are so many issues and challenges in our communities. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your openness and, um, and for sharing with us because we're just hoping that people hear it and, and learn a little bit and want to learn some more. And so um, as we end here, if you could just share with us how to get in contact with the AIDS Foundation Chicago, if people want to connect with you, where they can do that. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation, Nathan. Again, um, AFC, you can go to aidschicago.org and you can um, reach out to anyone. There's a help sign when you go to our website. Perfect. All right. Thanks so much. And of course, thanks to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. Remember to go to aidschicago.org to learn more information. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solutions Center. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guest. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of SATC Solution Center, SATC Law, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the hosts and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts, under certain conditions, and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including, but not limited to, or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceedings.